1: is good. He protects those who trust him in times of trouble. But like a roaring flood, the Lord chases his enemies into dark places and destroys them. So don't plot against the Lord. He wipes out his enemies, and they never revive.
0: Nahum, chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, Contemporary English Version.
1: You will please the Lord. Your country will be his bride. Your people will take the land, just as a young man takes a bride. The Lord will be pleased because of you, just as a husband is pleased with his bride.
0: Isaiah, chapter 62, verses 4 through 5, Contemporary English Version.
1: My dear friends, God loves you, and we know He has chosen you to be His people.
0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, Contemporary English Version Hello, I'm Victoria K. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with Crystal Sea's founder and the author of The Prodigal's Advocate, R.D. Fierro. Today on Anchored by Truth we're going to continue our discussion for how we can be sure that the God of the Bible exists. To help us get going in our discussions, we are using some extracts from Crystal Sea's upcoming audiobook version of The Prodigal's Advocate. R.D., why don't you tell us a little bit more about The Prodigal's Advocate?
2: Well, just as a brief review, Prodigal's Advocate is a fictional adventure story that follows a man in his mid-30s who we'll call the Prodigal And the the story follows the prodigal through a series of experiences that he has following his death and a tragic accident. The prodigal, after his death, winds up in a massive stadium-style amphitheater where he finds that he's just one among a huge crowd of people, all of whom are waiting to be called to face judgment. The judgment that they're waiting for is going to take place before a judge that is called the One Without Shadow. The name, the one without shadow, is an allusion, that's A-L-L, not illusion, is an allusion to the Apostle James' description of God that we find in James chapter 1 verse 17. In that verse, James tells us that God is the Father of lights and never casts shadows by changing.
0: Or in other words, God is perfectly good and pure eternally, and He is the source of everything, including the sun and the lights in the heavens. And God's perfection is so complete, there is no danger or chance that He will ever change.
2: Exactly. Or said a little bit differently, God is a perfect judge. So when people are called before Him, they can be assured that the judgment that He renders will be full, fair, and complete. Now, as I say, that could be a source of peace and happiness for some people, but for other people, that might be a source literally of holy terror. But of course, naturally, just like on this earth, the people sitting around waiting in the amphitheater aren't all assured that that's exactly what's going to happen in the Hall of Judgment. So the people who are sitting in the amphitheater just waiting to be called before the judge, at that point they hold a wide variety of opinions about exactly what form the judgment will take. So... The story is, while the prodigal is in the amphitheater, he has a series of conversations with other people about the various viewpoints that are common in our culture about the issues of life, death, and eternity. So it's in those conversations that I try to give readers a greatly condensed version of some of the most common arguments that are offered both for and against the Christian faith.
0: And what are we going to hear in today's clip?
2: Well, in today's clip from Prodigal's Advocate, we're going to hear, as Maria... That's the grandmotherly figure that we met in one of our earlier extracts. We're going to hear today how Maria is helping the prodigal to begin to understand the seriousness of the judgment that's facing him. And just like when we have those conversations in the world today, the prodigal does not necessarily like the news that he's getting from Maria.
0: Well, sometimes the kindest thing the doctor can do for the patient is point out the danger of continuing certain habits before it's too late. So here's another excerpt from Crystal Seas, The Prodigal's Advocate. Dear boy, you're forgetting something. Everyone who comes here has a journey first. Surely by now, you've talked to people in the colored robes, and I'm sure they started by trying to describe the fright they all had before landing in the outer court. They're always trying to impress you with how hard they had it.
2: I nodded affirmatively.
0: Well, Mr. Smarty Pants, how long did they stay wherever they first wound up after dying?
2: I shrugged, indicating my ignorance, and then the bells went off in my head. My face registered my comprehension. I think it also registered my dismay at not having seen my earlier obtuseness. I get it, I said, wavering between pride and chagrin. There's no way of knowing how long anyone's journey is to the amphitheater.
0: You mean to the outer court.
2: She corrected me, but like a grandmother telling her grandchild the difference between blue and green. Yeah, right, to the outer court. There's no telling how long the journey takes, just like I have no idea how long I was in that garden.
0: Exactly,
2: Maria said, and she added,
0: There's no way of knowing how long anyone will be in the eminent realm before they die, and there is no way of knowing how long their journey after that will be just as no mortal knows how long he will have in the outer court before being summoned into the Hall of True Glory. Some are called immediately after they first set foot here. Others have the opportunity for a great deal of reflection on what lies before them. None of us are guaranteed anything more than the certain knowledge that we will be called to account, and the manner and time of our call is entirely out of our hands. The One Without Shadows ways aren't like our ways. They're as different as heaven and earth. He deals with everybody in a way that's unique to that person. Even people like me, who knew the Advocate when we were still in the limited land, come here through different experiences. Oh, those experiences are glorious and wonderful, and certainly there are similarities, but each path is especially prepared for that person. The Advocate loves his people individually. He loves so many that it's a big group, but he wants a relationship, a really intimate relationship with each one. Sadly, it's the same kind of thing for those who have rejected him or who are planning to. No two of those temporary perdition experiences are alike. Every lost person picks the kind of world they want to be lost in, and no two are ever together. When someone rejects the advocate, they reject the one without shadow. When they reject the one without shadow, they reject every bit of his goodness. Well, since we were all made in the image of the one without shadow, when they reject him, they cast away anyone who bears his image. That means by rejecting him, they reject every other person ever made. After judgment, if you're lost you are really lost. Even worse, the only one who could rescue you is the very one whose kindness and goodness you rejected. But since you can't get totally away from a being who's present everywhere, even in the lake of fire, the one without shadow is still around. Only the part of him that's there is the part you chose for yourself, his perfect justice. You see, the people in the lake aren't worse than the people in the Advocates' land, but they got what they wanted. Justice, not mercy. Anyone who thinks about it ought to realize that the last thing any mortal should ever wish for themselves is perfect justice. If you'd ever read your third scroll, you'd know why. So in that scene, the prodigal hears that continuing to reject the Advocate's help isn't just a matter of personal preference. That rejecting the help of the only Advocate available before you stand before a perfectly, holy, righteous, and pure judge is not only unwise, but it poses a very real eternal danger to the person facing judgment.
2: Yes. And that's one of the points that James, as well as all of the Apostles, continually make in their writing. We have all fallen short of God's standards, because God doesn't just require that we are good in comparison with other people. God requires us to meet His holy standards, and since the standards arise from Him, and since He's perfect, the only acceptable standard when you stand before God is perfection. Now naturally, none of us have or ever could achieve the standard of being perfect, But fortunately, we don't have to be, because when we accept Jesus as our advocate, God judges us by Jesus' life and work, and not our own. When you think about it, it's just a mind-boggling, staggering, amazing exchange. Jesus takes our sin, but the transaction doesn't stop there. Jesus not only takes our sin, but God also imputes Jesus' righteousness to us. So when we stand before God with Jesus as our advocate, then God is actually looking at us through Jesus, and so any of the rewards that come to us are coming to us through and because of Jesus' holy perfection.
0: And that's a great lead into today's continuing discussion about how we can be sure that the God of the Bible actually exists. Just about every person who would speak honestly would readily admit that they're not perfect. But to make that admission means that we recognize that there is a standard against which we're comparing ourselves. So where did the standard come from?
2: Well, that's a great question. Because what it does is it points out that the created universe involves much more than just the existence of matter and energy. The matter and energy that's present in the universe isn't just out there in a random chaotic fashion. It's organized and it's ordered. So the order that we find present in the universe tells us that there was an organizing mind behind the creation of the order. If there was no organizing mind behind everything that we see out there, even in the physical universe, all you could ever expect to get, all you could ever expect to see, would be randomness and chaos. But that's not what we see at all. We see a finely ordered, designed creation that's ordered all the way from the tiniest subatomic particle up to the largest galaxy or nebula.
0: Right. Our awareness that there is a standard by which we can see that none of us lives a perfect life tells us that we not only see order and design in the physical universe, but we also expect to see it in our communities. We all intrinsically know that there are standards that should govern human behavior. Whether humans actually behave that way is another question but we all intuitively feel that some standards should apply to all of us. And this, again, is a strong indication that claiming that the universe is self-existent is an inadequate explanation for what we see around us.
2: Exactly. If someone contends that the universe is self-existent, one of the first questions we can ask them then is whether this self-existent universe is personal or impersonal. Now, I've never personally run across anybody, and I don't know of anyone who seriously claims that the matter and the energy that comprise the physical universe also somehow possess a personal nature. I mean, matter and energy, by the very descriptions of them, are inanimate material and force. But as we've been talking about for the last couple of episodes, the dominant explanation for the universe's origin today is the Big Bang Theory. But you see, when you take the Big Bang Theory and then couple that with an evolutionary explanation for how life exists, the two of those put together don't look very persuasive when it comes to providing us an explanation for the existence of personality in either people or in animals for that matter. It's very hard, matter of fact, it's impossible to see how a random collision of unintelligent and impersonal particles could somehow create order and design in the physical universe, much less result in people thinking that there are certain standards that should govern human behavior.
0: Well, in our last couple of episodes, we were examining four possible explanations for the existence of the universe that everything we see is an illusion self-created, self-existent, or created by a creator who is self-existent. Briefly, we saw that the first two of the explanations, that everything we see is an illusion or that it was self-created, contain inescapable logic contradictions that can't possibly be true. And then we said that the empirical observations of the universe point out that the universe had a beginning in space and time. So that eliminates the third option of the universe being self-existent. If the universe had a beginning in space and time, it means the universe can't be eternal, which is a necessary attribute for anything that is self-existent.
2: Right. Eliminating the first three possibilities for the explanation of what we see in the universe around us leaves only the fourth possibility, that the universe was created by a self-existent creator. That's the only real viable explanation for explaining everything that we see in the universe, that we see in life, that we see in the world around us. But as I pointed out last time, that even though the physical characteristics of the visible universe point out the need for an external, self existent creator, that the lines of reasoning that are brought to bear on that question, that's only the beginning of the lines of reasoning that point to the necessary existence of the God of the Bible. There are a number of other lines of reasoning that also support the same conclusion.
0: Such as the ones we've been talking about today. The presence of order and design in the universe can't be satisfactorily explained unless there's a mind that created the design. And the fact that we expect order and reason to govern human behavior shows that we are intuitively aware that the mind that designed the physical universe had a hand in making us as well.
2: Yes. Any theory of origins or explanations has to not only explain the physical universe, which again, is that's essentially what we were talking about in our last couple of episodes, any theory of origins also has to explain the origin of other phenomena which are undeniably present in the universe and part of our daily experience. To be valid, an explanation of origins has to account for more than just matter and energy. A theory of origins also has to account for the existence of life. It has to account for the origin of man, who is a self-aware, purposive, rational, and moral being. The theory would also have to account for the origin of sin and despair, and the existence of what we would normally term evil in the universe. And finally, any theory of origins, to be valid, would also have to account for the existence of hope. Because we know that even though there are problems in this life, and even though we know that sin, despair, and evil are present in the universe and in our daily experience, we also know that we have hope. We have hope for better things in the future. So any explanation that's going to account for the origin of everything has to also account for the origin of that hope. So when you start accounting for the beginning of the matter and energy in the universe, that really is only just the beginning. The explanation of origins for the universe has to also account for the existence of the order and design in the universe. And not only the order and design that's present in the physical universe, but also the order and the design that we see in the activities of living creatures, including people. So, in other words, it's not just a question of mind or matter, it's a question of both mind and matter. The universe contains not only the evidence of impersonal objects and phenomena, but also the existence of a personal dimension. And at a minimum, even if we disregarded the animals completely, at a minimum, since human beings are personal creatures, we would have to account for where our personal attributes originated.
0: And that's one of the reasons we open today with the scriptures from Nahum, Isaiah, and 1 Thessalonians. Each one of these verses, along with a huge number of others in the Bible, tells us that the God of the Bible is a personal God. Nahum tells us that God is good, and that part of the expression of his goodness is that he actively pursues his enemies. Isaiah tells us that God takes pleasure in his people, the same kind of pleasure a groom feels for his bride. And Paul tells us in Thessalonians that God loves, and in particular, loves his people. Loving, being pleased, and chasing enemies are the actions of a personal being, not an impersonal force. So, the reason we have personal attributes is because God created us in His image. He is a personal being, so He created us to be personal beings.
2: Precisely. The Bible gives us a very clear explanation for all the things that we see around us. It tells us how the physical universe came into being, but it also tells us way more than that. The Bible tells us that God is a God of order and design, but even more than just being a God of order and design, God is also a God of purpose. So, when God created the universe, He created a universe that reflects, albeit only partially, His will, His character, and His plans. And I think that that gives us another piece of evidence that demonstrates that God, the God of the Bible, is truly the author and creator of everything. God is a God of purpose, and so we see in the behavior of living creatures a reflection of that purpose.
0: Right. So what you're alluding to is that one of the real weaknesses of any theory that purports to explain the existence of life, absent the intervention of an omnipotent, omniscient creator, is an explanation for why life would have a reason for perpetuating its own existence. I mean, if a self-replicating collection of atoms and molecules had formed, what difference would it make whether the molecules and atoms stayed together? As we have pointed out before on Anchored by Truth, The second law of thermodynamics is the law of entropy or a tendency toward disorder. There are no observable exceptions to this law in the operation of the inanimate physical universe. So why would this randomly generated collection of minute particles of matter and energy all of a sudden start demonstrating purpose?
2: Randomly generated purposiveness is just a complete contradiction. It just doesn't make any sense. You can say the words, but they've contradicted each other the moment that the words leave your mouth. It's inarguable that all higher-order animals demonstrate very purposeful behavior. At a minimum, animals eat when they're hungry, and they drink when they're thirsty, and they reproduce on defined cycles. Well, of course, no creature but man could tell you why they do those things... But that simply means that in the lower animals, and animals other than man, that they perform those purposive activities in response to a built-in form of purpose, which we usually refer to as instinct. But again, how could such even an instinct arise out of just a continuing random collision of atoms and molecules? I sometimes ask people this question when I have discussions about these kind of subjects. Is biology just the result of physics and chemistry?
0: And what kind of responses do you get?
2: Well, I kind of get the responses that you would expect, usually some puzzled looks. And then they typically, after they've thought about it for a little while, start adding various qualifiers. And by far the most common qualifier that gets added to the physics and chemistry is time. So they'll say something like, well, if the Big Bang occurred 14 billion years ago, you had 14 billion years during which physics and chemistry might have had the time to act in various ways. That would have produced more than we can think. So I I understand the inclination, you know, the more time that goes by, the more things that you think might have occurred. But the passage of time does not amplify the power of physics and chemistry. Time doesn't add anything to the ability of physics or chemistry to explain specified complexity. When you just pose the question about whether all of the complexity that we see in the biological world can be explained by simple chemistry and physics, just posing the question reveals the difficulty of the underlying problem. Life, especially human life, is about so much more than physics and chemistry. And right now, we're not even talking about the truly problematics of human life that we've briefly alluded to a little bit earlier. We're not talking about concepts as complex as despair, hope, sin, evil, that type of thing. Right now, we're just thinking about two relatively simple concepts, the physical processes that keep life going in a universe that's often hostile to it, and some of the simpler attributes of personality. I think it gets to be pretty obvious that just thinking about the complexity of biological life, even physical biological life, points to the need for a cause for these things that's greater than a self-existent universe. In effect, when you start thinking about the complexity of life, of personality, of all of the things that we encounter in our daily existence, all of this points to the need for a cause That's omniscient, omnipotent, or in other words, one that possesses the attributes of the God of the Bible.
0: And if these elements of creation demonstrate the need for an omnipotent, infinite, personal creator, when we get to discussions of trickier issues like sin and hope, the problems for an undirected, self-existent universe escalate exponentially. As a brief review, the physical universe cannot be an illusion or self-created those ideas are fatally flawed logically. Empirical observations of the universe are inconsistent with the idea that the universe is eternal or self-existent. So the only remaining explanation is that the universe is created by a self-existent creator. And the presence of order and design in the physical universe show that the creator must have possessed those attributes.
2: Yes. And because, at a minimum, mankind displays personal attributes and behavior, the Creator must also have, or still does have, those attributes. Somebody can't give something that they first don't possess themselves. So in order for mankind, at a minimum again, to have received personal attributes, those attributes have to have come from somewhere. Physics and chemistry does not explain the existence of biology or personality. And if you start adding in the fact that certain animals display personal characteristics, that only amplifies the magnitude of the underlying basic difficulty. It's just an impossible question that physics and chemistry could explain all the complexity of biological life, or even the existence of the universe. So all of this points to the need for external intelligent intervention. And of course, we call that source of external intelligent intervention, God. And of course, right now, we're only just dealing with a couple of the simpler issues. As we go further in our discussion of explaining the origins of everything, the problem of sin, evil, despair, justice, and hope, when we get about explaining the origins of those things, the explanation that the universe without an infinite creator could be the explanation for the origins of all of those phenomena and attributes, that explanation just is insufficient.
0: But that is what we want to undertake in our next episode of Anchored by Truth. The fact that there are still questions to be asked and answers to be discussed is a great reason for listeners to join us next time. All this sounds like it's a great time to have a prayer. Since we're spending some time meditating on how we can learn to use logic and reason to increase our understanding of our God, today let's pray a prayer for the school boards that are so instrumental in the development of our children's minds.
3: A prayer for school boards. All wise and everlasting Father, we glorify your name for you alone are worthy to receive worship and praise as the one true God. We thank you Father, for the privilege of coming into your presence. We do so with glad hearts and earnest hope. Lord, we pray that you would be in our midst this day as we ask for special blessings for our school board. Theirs is the important work of providing guidance to all the schools and learning centers in our community. As issues arise before the board, please help the members to be faithful and diligent to their calling. Grant them wisdom in their deliberations and decision-making. Help them to always focus on the genuine needs of students and schools. Inspire them to be trustworthy stewards of the authority and responsibility that has been placed in their hands. Make your manifest presence felt in their meetings and ensure that they are never satisfied with mediocrity. Illuminate their minds with the brilliance of your word. Encourage them and do not let them grow weary in their tasks. We ask all this with the confidence that you hear our prayers for the sake of your Holy Son. It is in his incomparable name that we pray and
0: give thanks. Amen. Amen. Next time on Anchored by Truth, we're going to continue our discussion about how we can be confident that the God of the Bible actually exists. And because a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in series of topics, we want to remind listeners that if they missed any episodes or if they just want to hear one again, all of these episodes are available on your favorite podcast app. To find them, just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. We hope you'll be with us then, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more... Try out crystalseabooks.com where we're We're not famous, but our boss is. is.